You're listening to TIP. So sustainability actually has a link to financial performance, but only through this channel called materiality. And I think this is something that、uh, you know, I hope the listener can understand. Not all higher sustainability rated company will lead to better stock return or better price return, but only those issues are material to how a company operates. We're now finding more and more evidence of、uh, the linkage between sustainability and financial performance. On today's show, I'm joined by Mike Chen, who is the head of alternative alpha research at Robeco and has a wealth of knowledge in the areas of sustainability, machine learning, and alternative data. Where he has published a number of journal articles on these topics and has extensive experience working in the quantitative investing field. Previously, he was head of sustainable investments at Panagora, a portfolio manager at BlackRock, as well as Morgan Stanley. During this episode, I chat with Mike all about what alternative data is, how it is increasingly being used by hedge funds, quantitative funds, and some of the world's largest asset managers like BlackRock to inform their investment decisions and achieve alpha. What sectors they are able to get better insights on by using alternative data? What implications this has for retail investors' returns? We also talk about two major themes Mike thinks investors should pay attention to, including biotech and sustainability. How to get exposure to these themes, and why including sustainability considerations into your investment process can help improve your returns, and so much more. I found today's conversation with Mike so interesting, and I wanted to have him on because I think it's important for retail investors to learn more about who is on the other side of the trade, and more importantly, how that might impact our investments and where we can achieve alpha as retail investors. With that said, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Mike as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Where your hosts Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host Rebecca Hotsko, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Mike Chen. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. I spoke with your colleague Pim Van Fleet in a previous episode. We were talking all about quantitative investing strategies related to factor investing. And in today's episode, I'm really interested to have you on the show to talk about a different aspect of quantitative investing related to alternative data and machine learning techniques. You are head of alternative alpha research at Robeco. To kick off today's conversation, I think it'd be helpful to start off by having you explain to our listeners what alternative data is. Alternative data in the financial investment sense is really anything that is not coming from traditional financial statements, cash flow statements, and balance sheets, or coming from market data. So, you know, how did this security do in the past one year, one month, one week, so on? So anything sort of outside that very narrow set of information is what we call alternative data. But I think what made this term come into vogue in the recent, I would say, ten, fifteen years or so, is really the explosion, the amount of alternative data that's available because of the information and communication revolution that we have lived through in the past, you know, two decades. The amount of these data is actually exploding. Anything from satellite image 
to your basically your location data because of your cell phone, to your web searches and your social media, to actually what, uh, what people say, to shipping manifest, right? To what you know what's on the container ship and where those ships are, to even where you know like private jet flight records. These are all information that can, if used properly, be applied to financial investment. Can you talk a bit about who's mainly using this and then why you're using it? To use alternative data in the sense I describe, I think mainly started with quantitative investors. You know, so these are relatively large investment houses, such as ourselves, such as BlackRock and a lot of quantitative hedge funds. So you think Millennium to Sigma, these investment houses are historically has been using them. And because, you know, people have found success with, with using these alternative data and investing and the fact that they can get information that's really not readily available using traditional data sources, even fundamental investor, right? So people that basically invest according to their own analysis, you know, to how they feel about a certain, certain company. Even fundamental investors are now actually in a hunt for alpha via alternative data. So really, anybody nowadays are on the institutional side are actually using these kind of uh, data sources. So then you named a couple sources of alternative data. I'm curious to know who are the providers of that? And is that available to everyone? Or are you purchasing it and then it's solely yours? How does that work? There is actually quite a diverse alternative data ecosystem in investing. Some of these data are actually for free. Anybody can use them. For example, if you want to look at a employee sentiment, right? How does a company's employees feel about the company, the management, the outlook, the benefits, etc.? A lot of information is actually available for free. A lot of NGOs, they find malfeasance with certain companies' operation with their conduct. They are publicly listed. A lot of uh, government agencies, when they, when they find a given company, that information is publicly listed. Some of these data do have to be purchased. For example, I, I mentioned a shipping manifest. This is what's called as exhaust data. These are data that's generated through a company's normal operation. A freight company, you're shipping, you know, these cargos from A to B. You actually know what you're shipping, right? You have to know. Historically, what happens is that these companies just send this data. They say, oh, well, well, this is something that we use just to keep records and maybe we can file tax. And, you know, regulator comes and say, hey, what's in this crate? We know. But, you know, in recent years, they say, wow, hey, you know, people are actually looking for this data, so maybe I can sell it, right? So some of these data you do have to buy. Some are available for free. Are you also creating in-house data through different machine learning techniques or anything like that? So we don't create data per se. There are techniques in machine learning where if the data is very imbalanced, and I'll define what that means later, we can, you know, use, there's techniques you can use to make the data more balanced so that machine learning algorithms perform better. What I mean by imbalanced data is that, for example, say in medical research, you want to study rare disease. So you look for key metrics or, you know, KPIs that, that would indicate the presence of these diseases. Now, these diseases, because they're rare, by definition, only happens in a very small sample set. When you study them, a lot of people do not have them. So then what happens is that this creates a problem for machine learning because there's not a lot of samples for it to learn. So then, you know, machine learning can create artificial samples to make it larger. We do use these techniques to create artificial samples to make the data set more balanced. But in general, we don't create data sets because we want data to be from real life, you know, real events, real people, real society, etc., so that we could invest accordingly. But what we do actually is in addition to data that's curated, that's put out there for sale, 
or, or just, you know, for public consumption, right, from NGOs, et cetera. We do collect our own data sometimes. And I, for example, there may be a data set that we find, hey, this is interesting and useful, but it's not really available in general. So what we do is we, we sometimes we go out and collect the data ourselves, for example, through web scraping, when we web scrape the data. Once we have that data, then it's something that we, we have to access to, but these are all public data. A couple of the alternative data sets that really stuck out to me were credit card transactions and then the digital or satellite, because it just seems like there could be so many applications for those having that data. I'm wondering if there are any others that would be maybe surprising that retail investors would be interested to learn about. You're definitely right. So, you know, for example, your credit card transaction, right? what do you buy and what do you sell? Not just credit card, debit card and satellite. I think these stuff are directly impact the retail investor because they become the data. Others of that nature would be, for example, their, their footfall traffic. Where, where do they go actually? Right. You know, cause you have a cell phone with you, you have a smartphone with you and every, you know, every few seconds, it's actually sending out a location information to the base station. Technically that tracking information is there. Your internet search events where your purchase information. That's actually also available. Now, I have to say that obviously all of this is anonymized. So your credit card purchases, it doesn't identify you personally, individually. I say, okay, this person, you know, for example, myself, Mike, went and bought a new iPad this weekend in downtown Boston. That kind of information level is actually taken up. But so these data are what we call anonymized in the business, but they do look at a, a group of people or, you know, a geographical area so that you can tell what's happening, say, in this specific region for this specific demographic, what's happening, what are they purchasing, are they cutting back on their purchase, or are they spending more in this area, et cetera. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about which sectors stand to benefit the most from the yeah. use of alternative data. I think actually all sectors can benefit because, for example, right, for the energy sector, people have been using satellites to see whether the oil storage facilities are full or they empty, to track the, the shipment of oil tankers. Industrial sector, they, they actually look at smokestack, whether the, you know, the factory is running or not using infrared signatures. For transportation, they look at, they count how many trucks are in the various like transportation centers. Is it empty or is it full? But I think two sectors above and beyond all these other sectors really benefit are the consumer-facing sectors, consumer discretionary and consumer staples. Mainly, you know, really because there's just more data out there, right, for consumers, right? I just mentioned that people, there's credit card transactions being tracked. Where they go, are they going to certain stores? You can look at parking lots to see if the parking lots are full for certain retailers. You can see what people search for. In Google, right, using Google Google Trends, which is publicly available to see, oh, are they searching for, there's, you know, we have an Apple's uh, event coming up, are they searching for uh, iPhone 14 Pro as an indication of interest? So consumer-facing, I think, above and beyond all the other sectors that typically probably benefit more from the rise of alternative data simply because there's more data available. So when I was looking into this, I found that there were kind of three main use cases for alternative data to inform investment decisions. So one would be to find new investment ideas. So you mentioned this using a satellite to kind of examine the number of cars in a parking lot of a retail store to gauge consumer spending. Two would be to validate an existing investment idea. So use satellite images to track the number of vehicles in a car dealership, for example. 
And this could be used to as information that the dealership is doing well. And then three, monitor investments. A quant or hedge fund might use social media data to track consumer sentiment about a particular company. And then if the sentiment is negative, the hedge fund may decide to sell its shares in the company. I'm wondering if those are all accurate. And then if there's any more that are used that I didn't name there. That is definitely very accurate. So so you basically name the entire investment cycle, right? From idea generations to validation to exit decision. So the three examples you gave actually cover the whole spectrum. I think those are very good examples. You can also use it many different ways, right? For example, you can use, say, NGO data to see if a company is being fine, like committing violations that are serious or not. There's data you can use to see how many lawsuits are against a given company. Even more than just which investment you need to get into, you can it could actually analyze do these companies in general have good characteristics, right? Strong management, so on and so forth. There's definitely a lot of ways to apply alternative data. And I think alternative data, although very interesting, it is just data at the end of the day, right? So there's it doesn't make it any better or stronger than the traditional or fundamental data that people have been using. I think what's really interesting is uh is actually the creativity, how you want to use this data. I think more important than data itself is really, it goes down to the individual investor. Whether you're quant or fundamental, it's actually the same. What is your investment hypothesis and your thesis that you want to apply? Right? And then you go out and hunt for the data. But I think the benefit of alternative data is that it gives you so much more possibility to answer questions that you will always have, but perhaps, you know, we're not able to answer. And I'll give you an example. So corporate culture is very important, right? If you, if you worked in the industry for a while, you know, you know that if you work in a company where morale is very high, people tend to be more productive. People, there tends to be less workplace accidents. People tend to, they're likely to be more innovative, right? Because they actually want the company to succeed versus a company where everybody is apathetic. They couldn't wait to, for the bell to ring so they can go home. You know, they just tried to do the minimum to get by what's called quiet quitting. Culture and sentiment is something that's very, very important. It's not really particularly related to any sort of investment hypothesis, but just generally, are these in general good companies to invest in? Or are they just apart from the catalyst, right? It's like, oh, well, it's a good company to invest in because they have a, they have a new product coming out. But just general quality of a given company. And I think this is where alternative data can also be used. So you have this question that you always want to answer. It's certainly very important when you invest in a company. But you never really had the opportunity to. But now, with alternative data, by analyzing what people say, how they behave, do they complain a lot on the internet? What don't they don't complain a lot? You can kind of get a sense of what's going on inside the company. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married, and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, has built-in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, 
My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. That was really interesting, that piece you said about how it's not necessarily better than the traditional data. It's just, it can be applied differently. So I'm wondering, it does seem like these large institutions have gained kind of an advantage over retail investors with this data. We can access it or use it maybe to the same extent. But I'm wondering, is there any of these data sources you think retail investors should be paying attention to and maybe use in addition to their fundamental analysis? Institutional investors have always had an advantage compared to retail investors simply because this is what they do. It's their job. I mean, you know, my job is to look at this 10, 12 hours a day and trying to create value for our investors, right? Whether they be institutional investors or, you know, retail investors, but Robico as an institutional investment firm, this is our job. And we do this all day long. And there's a lot of people looking, doing this and we all discuss it. This is what we do. Just the amount of effort and the time and the people spent, I, I think it's difficult for retail investors to match. A lot of data sources I mentioned here, right, such as social media, what NGOs put out, for example, uh, bulletin boards and chat, chat, chat groups, et cetera. These are all available to retail investors, right? So I think, you know, if retail investors want, they can access them. And they, I think you, you should actually monitor them when you are an investor, whether you're institutional or retail. 
fundamental analysis is obviously important, but you also need to monitor, for example, the sentiment, etc. Right? You can have the best fundamentals in the world if the sentiment isn't great; it's still not going to perform. As a retail investor, I think you should monitor them. So the data access isn't necessarily the problem, but what you do with it, because there is a lot of data. There is a lot of data out there. You can look at all kinds of different sources. And even more, financial data is very famously noisy. What we do, right? Obviously, I'm a quant. What we do is we we take all this data and then we apply these statistical techniques, such as natural language processing, such as machine learning, trying to analyze and gain insight into these data. And then once we gain insights, right? We we don't just say, okay, well, this is right. We actually want to test it to see if it holds water historically, right? See if we could, you know, use the what's called a scientific process to explain whether ideas are right or not. I think you know if you're a if you're a retail investor, that might be a that might be a very hard threshold to cross, right? To to write up all these machine learning algorithms to analyze the data you get, and then to you know put everything together, synthesize it into a portfolio that makes sense. And, and also, by the way, you know you typically as a quant investor typically hold reasonable number of stocks, right? So anywhere between 100 stocks or more. As a retail investor, you probably don't hold that number of stocks. What might happen is that you know you could buy a few stocks. They could work out really well. And you make a lot of money, which is great. Or they actually could not work well, right? Because there are a lot of idiosyncratic risks that affects how a given security performs. More than just the fundamental. More than just the sentiment, right? For example, we all know that what's going on right now. The Fed is a hiking race. So a lot of these previously high flyers are not doing well. But going back two years, right? All of a sudden, world breaks down in a pandemic, right? What traditionally has been a very stable company, say a, a retailer, that all of a sudden nobody's going to retailer anymore. So these are just things you cannot predict, right? I think what the advantage of institutional investor. At least a quant institutional investor over a uh, retail investor is that we not only are able to process these huge amounts of data using advanced statistical techniques and put them together, we also hold a lot of these names so that we hedge out as much as we can the idiosyncratic risk and we basically hedge our bets. You know, we have an idea, we think this can work, but we're not sure if any given stock that exhibit these traits can work well. So we buy a lot of them so that overall we believe the idea that we have can work. I think that's the challenge of the retail investor. I guess I'm just wondering how you think that impacts retail investors' ability to earn alpha, especially on the investments that large firms are using alternative data techniques to analyze and make buy and sell decisions on, or is it not an issue because as retail investors, we aren't subject to the same constraints as larger firms and don't need to go to the same lengths to generate alpha on our investments? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, so you're right. Uh, retail investors are not subject to, first of all, you can buy a small company, right? And without really moving the market, which, you know, for some of the larger institutional investors such as ourselves, that's very difficult. Or we have what's called a capacity. So if we invest in, you know, these smaller companies, we can only buy a certain amount. It depends on how much money we're trying to put to work that might or might not move the dial. So I think retail investors do have a certain advantage. There's also, if you have smaller positions, you can be more nimble. Only not moving the market, but you can also trade in and out of certain names. I guess much quicker. I think retail investor can try to understand quantitative investing a bit more. And I think in particular to for millennial investors, I think this is actually something that could be very interesting because I think millennial investors can probably investigation, do some education on how do quant funds really work? How, how do they add value? 
I really wanted to talk with you about this today because I think it's important for retail investors to know kind of what they're up against in the other side of the trade. And I like that you mentioned it's not necessarily a bad thing. We kind of have our edge with smaller accounts. But I guess I am still wondering that piece of this evolving quant space. Like, are there any implications that we should be aware of? So I think we're actually retail investors probably have an edge over institutional investors are these micro stocks. Very small stocks where that are less liquid. These are things where retail investors probably have an advantage over institutional investors because, you know, institutional investors, first of all, they, we typically invest in larger stocks just because of the size of the, uh, the asset we're trying to employ, right? So, you know, it's really difficult to put a lot of money to work for smaller stocks. And a lot of these smaller stocks, you know, when you're, when you're large, larger an investor, you probably would not invest in them, right? But I think, you know, perhaps on these smaller names, less trafficked in, let's consider lower quality stocks, retail investors do have an advantage. Having said that, right, I, I do want to put in the caution that, you know, some of these stocks, such as, you know, GameStop, during the meme stock craze, uh, their price and their fundamentals are completely out of whack. Buyer beware, I would just say that. So I want to kind of jump back to the machine learning piece, because I think that's really interesting and kind of how that technique and technology is used. Can you talk about what machine learning is and then how it's used to kind of make sense of alternative data? What is machine learning, right? Machine learning, there's a lot of talk about machine learning. There's a lot of hype about machine learning. I think, you know, machine learning is, if you want to think about it, it's just a continuous evolution, at least in a financial sense. It's just a continuous evolution of what quant investors have been using historically. So historically, quantitative investors have a certain set of tools that we use, you know, such as regression, etc. Basically, we look at the relationship between input data and output data, subject to our investment hypothesis, of course. Machine learning is really powerful in the sense that machine learning allows us not just to examine linear relationships, right? So that means that, you know, if, if an input goes higher, then the output goes higher. If it's positively related, otherwise it you know, goes lower. If it's negatively related... But it also allows us to examine nonlinear relationship. So what happens to a given security price in the presence of uh, two, two indicators, for example, simultaneously? Or if an indicator goes really, really high, you know, maybe the price will go really high. I'll give you an example. Typically, higher the earning, the better the stock price. That's, that's very basic. But it could also be that a company has really high earning. But hey, guess what? There's some strong indication that this company could be cooking this book. In the presence of these two indicators happening, is that, well, typically that the stock price might not go higher because we don't even know if the earnings can be trusted. This is what's called interaction effect. Machine learning can detect all of these different combinations, right? So more than just the linear effect, it can detect interaction effect and also non-linearity. That's what makes machine learning so powerful. And I think another thing that makes machine learning so powerful is that machine learning is really trained to sift through a lot of information. And so when you have a lot of big data inputs, machine learning is trained to sift through all of that to see if you can detect any relationship between the input and output. Having said that, that's also where the danger is. Because, you know, financial investing is famously noisy. It is famously high dimensional. If you think about it, pretty much anything in the world can really affect a stock's price, right? From its fundamental to the sentiment to what the Fed is doing to, you know, maybe it's a CEO tweeted something. There's just like all sorts of information that, that can affect the price. So it is really very high dimensional. Now, we don't have nearly as much data and history 
to train a machine learning algorithm as compared to the dimensions that can affect the price. So what it means is that there is a there's the degree of freedom is very, very high, to use a very technical term. In this situation, what you find is that if you just say, I just want to throw this data into this machine learning algorithm I have to see what it finds, it could find something very, very ridiculous. I'll give you an example. It could actually, so for example, right, if you take the letters in a stocks ticker, like T-O-O-G for, for Alphabet or Meta for Meta, what you might find is that actually if the third letter in the ticker begins with S, Alphabet S, and short all the stocks with third letter with Alphabet O, you will actually have a phenomenal return over the last 60 years. That actually is an example that somebody has worked out. Obviously, to a human, say this is total nonsense. This is total happened by chance. This is what I mean by you know very high dimensionality. But if a machine learning algorithm, when you when you do that, it actually might not know. Oh, this is nonsensical. So what we need then is actually, even though machine learning is very powerful, it can detect a lot of information. You still need human oversight, right? Humans still need to impose some structure on it, precisely because the dimension is so high. Machine learning will do what it does, but it cannot interpret if it makes sense or not. It's a powerful tool. And that's both a good and bad thing. And I think, you know, even for quants, you, need, you do need to have human in there. You know, the quants need to design the experiment with the machine learning setup so that it learn, the stuff that it learns is actually sensible rather than say, oh, I'm going to buy every, every stock that begins with A and shorts every stock that ends with C. This is an example of what I mean by high order, high degree of freedom. So would it be fair to say it's still in kind of the early stages of any firm's investment process and informing decisions because it's still kind of being worked out, like you said? Machine learning is definitely in use. It's definitely being applied by large institutional investors such as ourselves. We definitely are applying them for our investment process, right, to, to the benefit of our investors. But I think the general public and even, you know, maybe perhaps is even the fall of some of our some investment professional is that there tends to be a, a lot of hype around machine learning. Like you think machine learning is this, uh, this wonder drug that can cure all ills. It really isn't the case. Machine learning is another tool in the toolbox. It is a powerful tool. It can do stuff that previous tools cannot do, right? For example, detect nonlinearity. But you have to know how to use it. And if you, know, if you use it in an uninformed manner, it can actually lead to a lot of problems for you. And the worst thing is that you actually might not even know what the problem are. Right? So I think machine learning is being applied. I personally believe we're still very early in seeing the power of machine learning as an, an application of financial investment. But it is being applied. But at the same time, you need to be very careful with it. It's that saying, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Because machine learning can do a lot of really unintuitive stuff if you don't put structure or constraints on it. You do need to be very careful. So you need to know what you're doing. I want to switch gears a little bit because as we know, AI, machine learning, all these technologies are really shaping the way that investment and quant firms can include them in their investment process. They're also just shaping our future in the companies and our world in different applications in healthcare, vehicles. So I'm wondering, how do you think investors can participate in these trends? What is the best way that we can also, I guess, reap the benefits of some of these? And should we be looking at investing in specific companies that are exposed to these trends? Or are you more in favor of just us buying maybe a basket of these companies in a thematic ETF? What are your thoughts on that? 
I definitely think machine learning is a uh, important trend. Just like computing is an important trend. Computing changed the world. Cellular phone, mobile communication changed the world. Internet changed the world. These are all major trends. I think machine learning is a major trend. I think it will impact the world. To see which one is going to be a winner is very difficult. If you think about it, back in the early internet revolutions, you have all these dot-coms. How many of them turn out to be winner? Probably not as many as the, all the castle <laughs> names that were listed, right? If you can recall that far. But it is a very real trend. I think, you know, I, I think, you know, investing in any trend, you, you mentioned thematic. I think that really is the way to do it, right? You want to identify a theme and you want to kind of spread your bets to identify companies that will ultimately benefit from this theme and merge the other side. As with any investing, right, you have the beginning stage where ideas being created, business model being explored. We don't really know who's winning to a sort of the hype stage. To the growth stage where you know, okay, some uh, practical, tangible results are seen. You see some, uh, some benefits and then you have a lot of people jumping in, right? And then you get to the overhype stage where valuation becomes very stretched, becomes very dangerous. Then you have the reckoning, a bunch of companies implode and, you know, a lot of consolidation. And then it goes into more steady state development. So we see that with the internet. We see that with computing. I'm certain we're going to see it with machine learning. It is very, very difficult to tell who's going to win. Mainly because, you know, this thing is still being developed. It's still being explored. People are still trying to apply it in a way that makes sense, right? And there's still a lot of unseen factors that's, you know, that could cause some of these, some very, even very good companies to, you know, just happens to, uh, they just happen not to make it because of the external environmental impacts that may perhaps funding rates has gone up, right? It's very expensive to borrow money and you just don't have enough runway to grow your business. So I think if you want to invest in a theme like this, and I definitely think machine learning is a theme that's worth investing in, I think the best way to do it probably is to buy a basket of related companies and hopefully that, you know, you have some company that will survive that do well. There are many thematic funds you've been investing in that can help you do this as well. So I think that's the best way to do it. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. 
We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You mentioned that these, once these trends become popular, sometimes they can become overhyped and they run the risk of overconfidence and then overpriced. Do you think we're there yet with some of these themes or not yet? We've seen it before, right? So some of the themes I personally do think are probably a bit more overhyped. I think, for example, machine learning is very powerful, but and it's very powerful in finance. It, it allows us to do a lot of things that it was not able to be done before. But if you think machine learning is something that can help you invest basically perfectly to generate basically a smooth monotonic increasing line with no drawdowns, no volatility, I think you'll be either misinformed or the person that's telling you this is not being completely transparent. I do think that for some of these newer technologies, perhaps the promise or the hype is, uh, is still more than where the technology is at the moment. So I'm wondering if you can talk about any other themes that are maybe important and should be on investors' radars that we haven't talked about yet. I think, first of all, sustainability is a huge theme. Another thing is, I think, the application of machine learning in biology. Protein folding is one of the tough, one of the toughest problems that exists in biology because it's so complicated. But it actually was solved recently by Google's AlphaGo. So now we, we're, we can begin to understand how protein folding happens and think about the implication. Another example is gene sequencing. I mean, just generally biotech, I think there's a huge promise. Our lives are back to normal because of breakthrough in biotech. This is a tremendous technology. And I just think that we're barely scratching the surface of the biotech revolution. We're thinking about actually possible cures for Alzheimer's and all these other diseases. Think about how much that's going to change the world, really. I think sustainability and biotech are two very broad trends that's definitely worth watching. There are obviously sub-themes within it, but these two trends are massive. And I think that's going to really affect us from years to come. I want to talk a bit more with you about sustainability because you have a background in sustainable investing. You have lots of papers written on this. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about why investors should care about ESG and sustainability. What would be the benefits of including these considerations in their investment process? 
So there are two reasons why you should care about it. I think one reason is personal, right? Just your personal preference. And again, something I don't want to go into because we all have different beliefs. I think that's actually something that you need to be very clear about when you, when we talk about sustainability. Sustainability is really an individual preference, right? If you want to, sustainability means a lot of things and it means different things to different people, right? You can care about climate. You can care about societal issues. You can care about whether the company has, you know, is paying its worker a living wage and provide reasonable benefit. These are all under the definition of sustainability. I'm not saying whether one is more worthy than the other, right? It's actually all important depending on your definition. And I think it's a, it's an individual preference. So you should care about sustainability mainly if you've wanted your money to express your personal value and preference. Okay. That's one thing. And I don't want to talk about that because everybody's different, but. You should also care about sustainability if you actually want better returns. That's true. That's a pretty bold statement. But it's not every single case of sustainable investment will generate higher returns. So that's something that you people need to be very clear about. Sustainability can only lead to higher return under the condition of what's called financial materiality. And what do I mean by that? A sustainable issue is material to a company. If whether a company does well or not well on the sustainable issue, sustainability issue has a dramatic impact on its operation. So I'll give you an example. Robico, you know, we're actually one of the world leaders in sustainability. Is Robico is very, very serious about sustainability. So Robico definitely are very careful about our carbon footprint, how our actions impact the environment and the community we operate in. So Robico should score very high, you know, depending on how you value it, but should score very high on E. And yet E is not a financially material sustainability topic for Robico because we're an investment company, right? So we don't have the carbon footprint of a power generator, of a steel manufacturer, of a heavy industry company, right? So we do we do well on E, and yet whether we do well or maybe perhaps not so well has very little impact on, on Robico's performance as a company. Right, so E is not a financially material topic for Robico. Another topic that falls within sustainability is uh, is employees' talent, right? Employee motivation, how happy employees and how satisfied employees are, how well employees are taken care of by the company when when the need arises. Robico also does very well on on this issue. Could be called the S, right? The social aspect or the employee wellness aspect of sustainability. Robico does very well on this topic as well. And this is actually a very important financially material metric for Robico because Robico, we can deliver value to our clients through the action and ingenuity and motivation of our employees. Whether our employees are very happy, you know, I, I really identify with this company. I want to do, I want this company to do well. I want to deliver value to our investors so that we can, you know, thereby make Robico does well. This is actually a topic that's financially material to Robico. The S aspect of sustainability is material for Robico. E, which we also very care very much about, is not as material. On the other hand, if you are a, let's say, a heavy industry company and you have, you know, these assembly lines that you have a lot of employees who are just, I mean, for lack of a better word, you know, a, a cog in the machine, what, whether any individual person has very high sentiment, we're very happy with the way that he's, he or she is being treated by the company. Well, it's very important from just from a human pers- humanist perspective, right? It's important to make sure that your employees are satisfied and happy. It might not impact the financial performance of your company that much. 
Where on the other hand, the environmental aspect, you know, if a company is very efficient in their operation, thereby they have lower environmental footprint compared to the competitor, that can actually impact the financial bottom line of a given company, right? So sustainability, what I'm trying to say is that actually has a link to financial performance, but only through this channel called materiality. And I think this is something that, uh, you know, I hope the listener can understand, right? Not all sustainability, higher sustainability rated company will lead to better stock return or better price return. But only those issues are material to how a company operates. And there's actually emerging literature from academia now that's actually discussed this topic. We're now finding more and more evidence of uh, the linkage between sustainability and financial performance. Just to kind of tie this all together, for investors looking to incorporate this into their investment process, should we be looking at... So you mentioned look at, think about what's material to that company. So for an energy company, we know it's largely environmental concerns. And then maybe the other two are a little less important, but they're still important. So figuring out that material aspect. And then I guess, can you just walk us through maybe what else are we looking for? What type of information on the company's financial statements and that type? I think sustainability is an aspect of investing, right? And in fact, all of the information you can derive from alternative data, you know, apart from the the more traditional factors that my colleague Pim has discussed with you are important. But the traditional factors, the financial statement data, they also matter, right? You know, when you invest in, it is a high dimensional problem you're solving. And every single piece of information is just part of the puzzle. You know, maybe traditional factor investing with traditional data gives you a pretty good holistic, pretty good view of, I'll say, the front facade of a building. If you think about investing as, you know, buying a house, right? It gives you a good facade of what it looks like from outside, perhaps on the inside. But with sustainability consideration, well, the alternative data, you can get a broader understanding. You can maybe look at the foundation, whether the foundation is good. Maybe the, you know, the house wiring is good, right? You still cannot understand everything, I guess, because in order to do that, you probably have to be an insider. And unless they disclose it, having inside information is illegal. But you can try to get more information than what you can do with traditional approaches, traditional data. Having said that, right, traditional data and traditional approaches are all, all important. And I think alternative data, sustainability data, sustainability consideration just can complement the information where you would traditionally get and give you a more holistic view of the investment puzzle. The last piece I want to talk to you about, because we just learned from Pim all about factor investing, I'm wondering, is sustainability almost becoming a factor in of itself? And what is the link between sustainability and factors? Do some factors score higher on sustainability that we should know about? Yeah, in general, traditionally, you know, I think there are a lot of definitions of sustainability. and. Traditionally, though, higher quality companies typically have higher sustainability score, right? Because of perhaps they have better governance, perhaps, you know, because they're higher quality, they would consider more of these issues, right? That, that could affect how their company's reputation, for example, their indigenous group, but, you know, how, how maybe their operation will impact with indigenous groups or, you know, the community they operate in. But I would say that within, I guess, the more common factors that Pim discussed, Quality probably has more to do with sustainability, but we believe, uh, you know, at least I believe sustainability is a totally different new factor than the traditional factors. So there's positive correlation of quality, but I think there's other dimensions 
of consideration that is not captured by traditional factor investing. For example, energy resource efficiency we talked about, right? Having a lower environmental footprint. Some of the higher quality companies are heavy industry companies that they, although very stable cash flow, they're probably not the most environmentally friendly companies around the world. These are additional dimensions that sustainability can capture that traditional factors cannot capture. So I, I think, you know, to long story short, I think sustainability is emerging as an, another definition, another factor within the world of factor investing. And in fact, this is what we have done at Robico. We have um, using the sustainability derived sensibility, create a lot more new factors into our portfolio. And the benefit of this is that actually what we end up with is that, you know, under the condition of materiality, we end up with basically portfolios that, you know, we expect will deliver higher alpha, but also have better sustainability characteristics, such as more satisfying employees, right? Happier employees, lower carbon footprints, etc. That was great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience go to learn more about you, your work, and everything you do? Thanks for that question. So, you know, I, I'm a member of the uh, Rubico Quantitative Investment Team. It's obvious not just me. We have a very large and talented group of people that's, uh, that is working very hard. And, you know, we, we, we like to write about our findings and talk about our findings. So anything you want to learn, you can find us at uh, www.rubico.com. You could also connect with all of us, you know, Pim, myself and others on, on LinkedIn. We'd like to post uh, our latest research, our latest findings, or just general thought of the day on these social media channels. So please reach out and we'd love to discuss these interesting findings with you. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There's a ton of useful educational resources on there, as well as our TIP finance tool, which is a great tool to help you manage your own stock portfolio. And with that, I will see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.